Grab your Bibles and open them back up to the book of Esther one last time. And uh, I'm going to read you just portions out of chapter 9. Um, it's, it's long and I, I tried to cut it down. So you follow as I read. It's, uh, first of all, verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to skip over to verse 16. I'm trying to give you the whole gist of the whole story and uh, just with reading portions of it. So here we go. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on them, on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. Uh, for, the, uh, for the man Mordecai grew more and more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Verse 16. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on, on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting as a, as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day, a day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for the sending of gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, pur that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days 
according to what was written and at the same time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city. And that these days of Purim should never fail into disuse, fall into disuse among the Jews. Nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, that endures forever. Guys, this morning, we're going to wrap up our study of the, of the book of Esther. And, and what I want to do as we, as we um, put the final touches on this study is to leave you with two or three, actually three, summary applications of, of the book in its entirety. I, I want to give you three things to ponder uh, in response to this book. But before we get there, I, I, I want to spend a couple of minutes just wrapping up the story itself. The story is just about over, but let me, let me just put some finishing touches on the, on the story itself. Now, guys, next time Purim rolls around, which uh, next year is February 23 and 24, you'll have another excuse to have a party. You can invite all your friends, both of them, and... Um, and they'll ask you, uh, uh, what, what is this all about? And you can, you can explain to them this whole celebration of, of Purim. Guys, these last two chapters, 9 and 10 of the book, uh, they're somewhat anticlimactic. Um, the, the drama of the story, the high drama of the story, that's over. In fact, by now, Xerxes, <laughs> bless his heart, Xerxes has been assassinated in his own bedroom. And Esther and Mordecai are long gone. And Purim, the celebration of Purim, was catching on. It was was becoming a a national celebration. Commemorating commemorating that, that event that led to their deliverance... Um, a, a deliverance from certain death. It's a, it's a celebration that celebrated the, the survival of God's covenant people against all odds. You can understand, I bet, why um, the Nazis and Hitler so hated the book of Esther. Um, it was not allowed... It was um, forbidden, and so Jews in, in the death camps would gather and um, celebrate it from, from memory and uh, recount the story from memory because the message of the book is that God's people survived in the face of all odds. So the big day arrives. Um, the 13th of Adar, and, and everyone is shaking in their boots uh, for fear of the Jews. That's what it says in verse 2. But apparently not everybody, because 75,800 75, people died, and they died probably because they never got word of the, of the counter-decree that the king had issued. That's the one we talked about last week. The counter-decree that would overturn... Haman's 
evil decree to try and uh, wipe out all those Jews. Now, guys, before we get to um, the three applications I want to leave you with, there's, there's some things in the text that I, I just feel duty-bound to draw your attention to. They're, they're emphasized, and, and I just need to mention them. I'm, that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to try to make applications, but they're just... It may mean something for you because obviously the Holy Spirit wanted it in this book. Um, first, the author of this story is careful to point out three times in verse 10, in verse 15, and in verse 16. And anytime something is mentioned three times, it's, 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 it's an emphasis. Um, and, and the emphasis is that the Jews did not avail themselves of a privilege that, that the decree allowed, and that is, they did not take any of the plunder, any of the, the spoils of war. Um, we're not told why. We're just told that they did not do it, although the, the decree allowed it, um, because they weren't going to use this day as a day of personal profit. The, the motive was not economic. The, the motive was sheer survival in the face of their enemies. That, that's one emphasis that's in there. A second one that I thought was very interesting is that the, the, the ten sons of Haman are, are hanged. But they are also listed by name. And I didn't read that. It's in verses uh, uh, six and following, or seven and following. And the reason I didn't read because I can't pronounce all those names. But um, all ten of those names are mentioned. Now that means, first of all, that, that there are no more Agagites which means that the Jews of Persia succeeded where Saul had failed centuries before. But the question is, why would the author want to name them? Why would all ten of their names appear in this text? Well, it's hard to say. Um, But there was one scholar who wrote a book entitled uh, Persia and the Bible. And he suggests in his work that those names that are, missed, that are listed there were names that were once used in early Iranian and Hindu writing and later became associated with demon powers in Eastern religion. Those names. I, I, I don't know whether he's right, uh, but if he is, the, the narrator is telling us something about the... Um, the impotence of false gods, I guess. And then finally, guys, Purim, the celebration of Purim is different from all of the other feasts that are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, I think there are five others that are mentioned in the Old Testament. But Purim is different. And the primary difference is that it's man-made. Guys, it begins as a spontaneous celebration. The other five, God directed, but this one... This one came as kind of a groundswell of interest and celebration. But at the, at the core of this celebration, was um, what, what it meant was, is that the day of death had come and gone for God's people, uh, and they were still alive. That's something to be happy about, don't you think? <laughs> but, but it seems to point to a future day when death, death is done. And God's people have entered into some kind of eternal rest. It seems to point, in in some ways, to heaven. Now, those are just the three things that I wanted to to point out before we left the story. 
But having done that, I want to leave you with three applications, three applications that um, as things that I think that the author wants us to ponder as we walk away from his book. The first is, is the miracle of deliverance. The second has to do with the nature of faith. And the third has to do with the wonder of marriage. So we're going to look at the, the, the miracle of deliverance, the nature of faith, and the wonder of marriage. First, the, um, the miracle of deliverance. Guys, in the New Testament, the, the gospel of the New Testament states that for Christians, the day of death comes and goes and we're still alive. How? Why? How, how does that happen? Um, well, that's one of the questions. In fact, I think it's perhaps the question that the author of this book wants people to ask who's read his book. Um, how, how did it happen in the book? How did people who were under the decree of law, who deserved to be killed... How did they end up defeating death and living? Well, <clears throat> was it to their military prowess? No, it wasn't their military prowess. Was it their, was it their financial maneuverings? No, it wasn't that either. Then, then how did they do it? Well, here's how they did it. Somebody went to bat for them. Somebody went to bat before the king... And produced a counter decree, the, the, the thing that I mentioned last week. Somebody, as a representative of these people, gained the favor of the king. And because of that mediation on the part of that one person in this book, it's, it was Esther, um, as a result of her mediation, as a result of the mediation of one person, a whole nation lives. Now, guys, do, do you not hear the gospel in that? Tell me, how is it that people like us, who live under the law, who deserve punishment and destruction and condemnation, how is it... That we live. I'll tell you how that is. Somebody went to bat for us. And, and, and his name would be Christ. Somebody gained the favor of the king on our behalf. And his name would be Christ. Someone mediated on our behalf. And as a result of that mediation produced a counter-decree such that people who deserved to die didn't. And his name would be Christ. Someone, the emphasis on the one, represented a whole group of people. And as a result of his representative work, a whole group of people now live. Folks, 
all of the power and the wealth in the world cannot cancel the decree of death that abides upon this created order. Nor can all of our vaunted goodness, does it, not, it doesn't add up, it isn't enough to escape what my sin deserves. Guys, you know what the Bible says. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Do you know what my you know what my you know what I've earned? Do you know what my sin deserves? Deserves death. You know, I, I bet you I know what some of you are thinking. Maybe not all of you. I bet you I, I bet you I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, yeah, Jimmy. I hear what you're saying. Uh, um, I've got sin. Because you know, nobody's perfect. But I've also got some good deeds. And the way that I see it, my good deeds kind of outweigh my bad deeds. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a false gospel. And I want you to know that if that's what you're thinking, it's not the message of this book. Nowhere in here do you get an idea like that. All the so-called morality that you can offer cannot take spiritual death and turn it into spiritual life. Okay, then. then. Then what hope for us is there? Well, here's the good news, ladies and gentlemen. Listen. Somebody went to bat for us. Somebody went to bat for us. Somebody went and gained the favor of the king for us. Somebody, as a result of his mediation, has produced a counter decree. Somebody, because of his representative work, has accomplished something for us such that the king, God, grants new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Guys, somebody has gone to bat for us. And the one who went to bat for us, not only did he, did he die in, the play, in my place for my sin, but he went on to also resurrect from the dead. And because he has resurrected, if I'm identified with him, I will too. Guys, the resurrection is the final proof that God has destroyed the grand enemy of his people, death itself. Guys, think of it like this. There's a sense in which Easter is the Christian's purine. It's, it's, the, it's the time where we celebrate a victory over death by the resurrection of the one who went to bat for us. That's what's going on at Purim. We were supposed to die in this book, but now we live. How did that happen? Because somebody went to bat for us, folks. 
that which was supposed to, to overwhelm me didn't. And it's been conquered. It's the miracle of deliverance. One of the things, ladies and gentlemen, that this author wants you to think about is how do people who deserve to die, how do they get life? We get it. The same way they got it. Somebody went to bat for them. And somebody's gone to bat for us. Here's the second thing that I... I think you would should ponder as we leave the book of Esther is the nature of faith. Guys, the, the book of Esther invites us to ponder the nature of faith and asks us to do that in a world where God is, is basically unseen. What does faith look like in a world where God is basically unseen? Uh, we, we, we have his promises that are 2,000 years old, but we don't have any miracles. We don't have any prophets. What, what, does, what does faith look like in a culture where the only thing that exists are his promises... And, and the culture seems to more and more reject those promises and become more and more secularized. What does faith look like in that? Well, um, what does the book tell us? What does the book of Esther tell us about living by faith in a world where, where God is unseen? Well, the first thing it tells us, folks, is that... That the world and all of its, its players, all of its pride, just like Haman, in the final analysis, they're nothing but pawns in a universal scheme of redemption. Gang, this book calls us to trust in a God when, and, and, and perhaps especially when, he seems the most absent. And we cannot imagine how he could possibly do what he has promised to do in his word. What this book tells you is he pulled it off here. And he's going to pull it off again. And he's going to do it in ways that will surprise us and will take our breath away. Guys... In our lives, we've made some good decisions. We've made bad decisions. We've, we've got some mistakes that we regret. We've even got some skeletons hanging in our closet that we don't want anybody else to know about. But all of it, all of that, ladies and gentlemen, are nothing but items in God's redemptive plan, not only for us, but for his greater work of redemption in all of human history. He sovereignly rules and overrules via not the miraculous, but the ordinary, which is the thing that we call providence. So this book, ladies and gentlemen, invites us to ponder the nature of faith in a world where God is unseen, because for us, God's absence is just as palatable as it was for these folks. 
And we're being called upon to obey a God who has left behind some promises, but a God we don't see and whose providence is often veiled. You want to know what faith looks like in that setting, ladies and gentlemen? I'll tell you what it looks like. It has an element, an element of, if I perish, I perish. Do it. That's what it looks like. Faith in a culture that very much resembles Esther's. Faith says that I am banking my life and my eternity on promises that God has made to me. And if I perish, I perish. That's what it looks like. It is standing on promises that God makes has made when everything's swirling around it seems to militate against those promises ever being kept. And so we are people who, like Esther, says, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know whether the king is going to receive me. Because you know if he doesn't hold out the golden scepter, I'm going to die. But that's okay. If I perish, I perish. But the message of this book is, you're not going to perish. That's the second thing that I think the author wants you to consider as you walk away from this book. And then finally, the third thing, the mystery of marriage. You know, guys, um, Esther, Esther was taken from the slums. She was brought into the palace, and she was there made not a servant or an employee or, or even a friend, but she became the wife of a king. Folks, um, the offer of the gospel is not merely to cancel my sin and save me. That's a part of it, yes. But not only does Christ offer to save me from my sin, he offers to be my spouse, my husband. Not just my Savior, but my husband. Even though this bride has no beauty to offer him, it's, 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 it's the husband who gives beauty to his bride, not the other way around. I, I have no beauty to offer him. I have nothing to offer him to make him love me. I have nothing to bring to him that will evoke from him some kind of love for me. The only thing I bring 
The only thing I bring to him is my sin and my shame. But ladies and gentlemen, you think about this. Once I become a Christian, I sit with him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Not as an employee. Not as a servant. Not as a, even a friend. I sit with him. As his wife. As his bride. A relationship of intimacy. A relationship of permanence. Am I forgiven? Oh, you bet you are. Am I safe? Indeed so. Are, are, are we friends? Sure. But am I loved? You know, ladies and gentlemen, I think one of the hardest things for people like us to believe is that we're loved. One of the messages of the book of Esther is that she was brought in not to be a slave, a friend. She was brought in to be a wife. Am I forgiven? Yes. Am I safe? Yes. Is he my friend? Yes. Am I loved? Yes. So ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> when you think of the book of Esther, think of it like this. Think of it as a story about a little sinful orphan girl who became the wife of a king. Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is the story of all of us. A great story indeed. Our Father, I, I pray that you will remind your people through this uh, Old Testament book that there is, um, there is a life to be lived in faithfulness and confidence. There is, a, there is a gospel to be believed. There is a relationship to be enjoyed. All because of a Savior who went to bat for us, who died in our place, resurrected brought us to himself and has made us his bride. That we are people not simply forgiven of our sin. We are, we are the objects of spousal love. And that we, like Esther, were brought in from the outside in the midst of all of our sin. And we were made a wife. We were made a part of the bride of Christ. And I pray, Father, that your people might relish the beauty 
of Jesus not only as their Savior, but Jesus as their husband. Do that, Father, for us. Give us that kind of sweet certainty. The world seems to be headed in another direction. Would you sink our feet more deeply into the bedrock of faith? We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.